0: In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Redemption. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, My role here is vocational discipleship. I really enjoy connecting with people uh, about helping to shape their view of, of work and helping discern calling and vocation. I'd love to connect with you if you are wrestling with those questions. And, uh, but today what I get to do is I get to help lead us through our Philippians series, kind of wrap it up here a little bit, and look at this well-known passage toward the end of the book in Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 4. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and someone will get you a Bible. Father, we, uh, we are grateful for uh, the ways in which you form us and meet us in every circumstance. And Lord, we pray that today, as our good shepherd, you would guide us into your word and guide us into the reality uh, that you are present and can bring about a deeper contentment and satisfaction than we could even imagine. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 4. And I want to start off today by telling you a story about a guy named Chris. Imagine Chris. Chris is a high school basketball player. He's, He's really good. But he's looking around at his team and he realizes his team is struggling and even he himself is struggling. He's missing shots and he can't understand what is going on and why his team is crumbling. Their camaraderie is struggling. And and they start to lose some games and Chris starts asking the big questions about why, what's going on. And he starts praying. And he goes to a Bible study. And he starts hearing about the the power of God to work within us, and he's very interested. He becomes a Christian. He starts inviting his other teammates to the Bible studies, and they start becoming Christians. And they study this passage that we're going to read today, in particular the verse Philippians 4.13, which says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Chris gives this impassioned speech to his team. About even though they're going to play the the toughest team the very next game, the team that is undefeated, they can, through the power of Christ, do anything. They could win this game, they could beat the best team. And everyone's fired up, everyone's believing that Christ is going to be on the court with them, helping them win the game. So they take their shoes, and on their shoes, they take a a Sharpie marker, and they write Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They step on the court, and you can tell there's something different about this team. They really believe that this is the game, that God has been working in them, and he's going to be working through them in this game so that they can bear witness to him. So the game starts. They're passing the ball with crispness. They they are sharing with one another. They're working as a team. And finally, the ball goes over to Chris. He dribbles the ball. He goes to the basket. Very first possession of the game. He's never dunked the ball before, but he thinks, this is my moment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) And as he gets in the air, he realizes he cannot jump that high. He gets hung on the rim, falls backwards in front of all of his friends and family, hits the ground, makes an awkward squealing sound, breaks his foot, and the other team scoops up the ball and goes and dunks the ball on the other side of the court. They, the other team wins by 50 points. It's their worst <laughs> loss of the season. And at the end of the game in the locker room, One of the players on the team, one of the more skeptical players on the team, walks up to Chris and points out the shoe that was holding his now broken foot and the verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, where was Christ on that basketball court? Where was Jesus, the one who could strengthen us to win the game, on that basketball court? We prayed and we believed, and he didn't come through. Now, I want you to imagine that you are Chris. What would you say in that moment? What would you say to your skeptical teammate? All right, I'm going to give you a second to turn to a few people and answer that question. If you were Chris, what would you say in that moment? So go ahead and do that now. All right, let's go ahead and bring it in. Philippians 4.13, which is one of the main verses in the passage that we're looking at today, is probably in the top ten of the most misinterpreted verses in all of Scripture. It's littered throughout locker rooms and boardrooms and living rooms of Christians who've come to believe that this means that if you really trust in Jesus, Jesus will give you miraculous success and help you in all of your endeavors. But the reality, which we are going to see today, is that Christ does not promise miraculous success, but he does offer a mysterious contentment in all circumstances. He doesn't promise miraculous success in all of your endeavors. You might just get beaten by 50 points. (laughs) But he does offer a deep contentment and satisfaction that can transcend any circumstance. And this is actually a more miraculous, more hopeful reality. Because in our day, contentment is hard to come by. $197 $197 billion are spent each year on advertising in the United States of America. That's more than the next six countries combined. In other words, there is an all-out war that is well-funded, that is studying you and your desires and your wants, and is is. is Shaping the messaging that you are getting to communicate that you don't need to be content. Saying you need bigger homes and better jobs and a higher status. You need more entertainment, more babies, more possessions, more gadgets, and more social status. And how miraculous would it be that in the midst of that world, there would be an island of contentment that's living in the peace of Christ, and that doesn't need all of those things. May want those things, but knows that the only thing we truly need that gives us contentment is Christ. So today I'm going to walk through the passage of uh, Philippians, primarily 4, 10 through 13. Um, And then I'm also going to reflect on some of the implications for life and then talk about how do we cultivate that sort of contentment in Christ. So as we look at the passage, what we see is that this comes at the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Functionally, this, the end here is a thank you note to the Philippian church for their financial support. This was the only church that was, was for sure financially supporting Paul and his church-planting apostolic ministry. And he's received a financial contribution from them So he's thanking them. And he's writing this thank you note in such a way that it's expressing uh, not that they are in a transactional partnership of client and patron, but they are cooperating together for the gospel. And the social dynamics of that day are such to where thank you notes were often seen as um, putting people into a client-patron relationship. And to talk about money and to talk about need, um, especially with the philosophy of stoicism, was to almost imply that you wanted more. So he's trying to write a letter to them that's thanking them, that's honoring them for their generosity, without it fitting into sort of the cultural uh, transactional construct of the day where uh, they are he is their client. And, and, and they are essentially funding him, and they are the patrons. Um, so with that said, let's go ahead and look at verse 10. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What Paul is saying is here is that he is overflowing with joy because of the financial gift that they gave. But it's phrased in this awkward way where he is not saying thank you explicitly, but he's saying that he has this joy toward God, ultimately recognizing that the gift came from God and only came through their hands. And he says that you revived your concern for me. Now, this is beautiful language. It talks about this relationship that he had with the Philippian church that was this ongoing relationship where they were together in the work of advancing the gospel. And the word for revived is this word that has this connotation of blooming again. In other words, it's like a perennial plant. The beauty of their generosity Whenever they had the logistical opportunity, would bloom again and would be like a fragrant offering to Christ. It would be beautiful to Christ as they work together in this. But then in verse eleven, it says, "Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned that in whatever situation I am in, to be content." Now, this is kind of a strange thing to throw into a thank you note, right? Imagine you got a thank you note for a gift that you sent and someone's like, thank you very much for this, but I, but I don't need it, just so you know, but, but thank you, but I don't need this, I, I want you to know I'm content without this, it would kind of feel a little insulting, right? Uh, But what's happening here is that culturally they're steeped in in stoicism of that time. And the the philosopher Seneca said, talking about your needs implied that you were asking for money. And Paul is trying to really emphasize the nature of their relationship is is, uh, what he really cares about. He cares about them um, loving God and being cultivated in generosity rather than him needing all of their stuff. So that's kind of why it's phrased there. And then he goes on to actually make the case that this isn't just lip service, but that he really has learned how to be content in all circumstances. So the word contentment here, to the Greeks, that was connected. uh, It was used often in in stoic uh, discourse. um, And it it meant to be self-sufficient, to basically be okay without needing the external stuff And Paul is not endorsing Stoicism, but he's actually subverting Stoicism by using their very concepts. And and he's essentially saying here that what contentment is, is that it's not wrong to desire, have desires, and to have ambition. But contentment is when we are not being controlled by those desires, and that we can be okay, that we can be whole, that we can live our lives without having those desires and longings to be the very thing that drive us. In verse 12 and 13, it says this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) This is where we get to the all things passage. And it's coming in this broader context of I can do, I can endure in any circumstance, being brought low, or abounding. You see, Paul knew both. He knew what it was like to have influence amongst the the uh, the leaders of the day to live in wealth, but he also knew what it was like to go hungry, uh, to not have much, to be to live in poverty. And to suffer very challenging circumstances. And he says that he's learned to be content to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now you might be saying, well, wait a minute. It says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And oftentimes we are taking that passage and we're not interpreting it in the light of what Paul is saying in in the rest of the book. But we're interpreting it in light of this deeply held cultural belief that is disseminated through our, our education system often That's you can be anything and do anything that you want if you just put your mind to it. And once we become believers, we, kind, we still like that sometimes because it really elevates us, but we know that it's not right, so we finally found our verse to put a Christian spin on it, right? And so we... Take it to mean I can, I can do anything and be anything I want to if I put my mind to it and also if I, like, invite Jesus to take the wheel in the situation as well. But if you think about it, I mean, think about it the absurdity of it. Oftentimes, we take it to mean I can do all things, uh, like I can be successful in all my endeavors. But really, I mean, think about it. Can you do all things? The way that this is often interpreted, if you took it to its logical conclusion, you would have to say, could you grow 10 inches? Will yourself to grow 10 inches and to go play in the NBA. Could you? Could you do that through Christ who strengthens you? Could you make yourself become a block of cheese? Could you... Could you make the uh, the Avengers a real thing and then give yourself superpowers to join the Avengers through Christ who strengthens you? Obviously, this passage is not talking about Jesus as the genie that can turn you into cheese, but the one who is at work within you to allow you to endure even the worst of circumstances. And Paul, when he says that he's been brought low and abound, it's very interesting that he is pointing to the, not just his struggles. He's learned to be content in his struggles. But he actually is saying that he has learned to be content even in abundance. And throughout history, the church fathers have, have often pointed out to the fact that it's harder to be content often when you have a lot of things rather than when you have little. I mean, I remember my first place that was my own place where I lived, where I was paying rent somewhere, I rented a closet in somebody's garage. It was five feet wide and about 15 feet long. It was really oddly uh, arranged. But he had an air-conditioned closet in his garage, and it was paradise for me. I thought, how amazing is it that I get this little bullpen to live in? And today... I'm living in an 1,100-square-foot house, and it's bigger than any house I lived in as a kid, and I spent my entire day on Zillow yesterday, not the entire day, but much of the day, looking at houses everywhere, including West Virginia. I don't know anything about West Virginia, (laughs) but my assumption is, in this great heat of the Arizona summer, it's got to be better than here, (laughs) and there's this deep discontentment at work, and it's even harder in the peak of my abundance than it was when I was uh, living in the closet in the garage. And I know that many of us can relate. We know that, uh, that, that it is just as hard to be content when things are going well as when it is a struggle. But Paul says he's got a secret here. Now this word secret is only used once in the New Testament. And it's borrowed from the cultic language of the day where there were these cults that had these secrets about how to be initiated into the secret mysteries of a pagan religion. And Paul is using that idea, not to affirm a pagan religion, but to uh, say that Jesus is this, uh, in knowing Jesus, I've learned the secret to contentment. And what is the secret to contentment? The secret is to be in union with Christ as the one who strengthens you, to know him, to be, have such a deep anchor in him that you have a sense of wholeness and life and that are strengthened in the midst of every circumstance, no matter what sort of inputs and possessions and opportunities you get in your life. So, while Paul is using the language of Stoicism, he's parting from it here. It's this, the Stoicism being the philosophical idea that we need to detach ourselves from the things of the world and detach ourselves from emotion so that we can cultivate virtue. This is not about detaching yourself from those things that you really desire, it's about attaching yourself to Christ. And if He is the great feast, the (laughs) stake, That truly satisfies, then the rest of the stuff becomes spam. We can be, we can long for Christ, the one who truly satisfies, and not have to crave uh, the other things. Now, what's really important is to be sure that we clearly identify what this passage is not saying. It's not saying be content with evil in the world. Paul Paul is not ever okay with the fact that there are more people who don't know about Christ, that there's sin that's rampant, that there's injustice in the world. It's not saying to be okay with the brokenness that's a part of the fall. It's also clear that it's not saying be emotionally detached like a stoic. No, it's saying be emotionally attached to Christ. And it's not saying that ambition is bad. Contentment is the ability to actually have desires and ambition, but not to be ruled by them. So what Paul is saying here is that he doesn't promise miraculous success, but he offers mysterious contentment in all circumstances. And I, I want to talk about how to cultivate that. But before I do, I want us to just imagine together what that would look like. See, Paul's trying to shape the Philippian church in that time into a people who are generous and content in all circumstances knowing that as they are shaped like that they display Christ in the midst of a world that is hungering for him. And what would it look like if we had a deep sense of contentment? And let's just pick the two areas that I think most people struggle with when it comes to contentment, the, the most prevalent areas. The questions of where will I live and where will I work? Now, I don't want to do a show of hands in here, but I'm going to guess if we did an honest survey, we would have in this room, probably 90% of the people in this room have thought about changing one of those things within the last six months or so. So let's talk about it. Let's imagine it together. Imagine if we were a people shaped by the gospel, shaped by the sufficiency of Christ, Who could answer where will I live in a different way imagine if we were we weren't constantly looking for a new place a better neighborhood and a cooler city to live in imagine if we didn't have to move because we have cultivated such a deep relationship with Christ that the most humble home can become a glorious sanctuary The most humble home in the most plain neighborhood in the most unimpressive city without all of the glorious Pinterest stuff could have a level of depth and vibrancy and life because Christ is present there than the most glorious architectural temple that you could possibly imagine. Imagine if some of us moved and some of us stayed. But we weren't driven to do either one of those out of discontentment or having the pressure to have the nicest homes and to turn them into the incarnation of a Pinterest board. But what if that would mean that we could cultivate these embassies of stability and hospitality in a world of loneliness and disconnection? Instead of constantly packing up our stuff and unpacking our stuff, we can actually welcome people in and to cultivate in a little neighborhood, a little plot of God's world, uh, a contentment that comes from Christ and a witness to what Christ is like who brings that contentment. Think about how we answer that question, where will I work? What if God's people weren't constantly driven by career advancement, but were content in Christ and only changed positions If we were convinced that it allowed us to love other people, including our families, uh, better and to better care for them. But we weren't driven by the identity that comes from climbing the ladder. What it would do is it would liberate us from the Peter Principle. Who's familiar with the Peter Principle in here? Yeah, it's this idea, uh, often talked about in management, that there's a propensity for people to get promoted past their level of most effectiveness. So in other words, the best teachers often get promoted into being the most average administrators, and it robs the world of a good teacher. Or the best engineers uh, stop doing their engineering and they become a manager of engineers. But if there was a community that was rooted in the gospel, we could be liberated from the Peter principle and do the most fruitful work uh, for the good of our neighbors. Knowing that, Scripture calls us to this sort of fruitful work. We were created to contribute to the flourishing of God's world through the work of our hands, but our works are often stifled when we have a deep discontentment and we struggle to feel secure and and significant. Imagine if we found our contentment in Christ and we're free to answer the question of where will I choose to live and where will I choose to work? Not in this desperate attempt to satisfy something in our soul, but in this free attempt to love our neighbors well. So uh, we can imagine what that would look like. But you're probably saying, what does it look like to actually cultivate that contentment? Because there's $197 billion that are being pumped into the world to convince me to not be content. How do I cultivate a sense of satisfaction in Christ to where I'm not ruled by Zillow, and Netflix, endless binging, and ruled by the endless uh, career advancement, and, and try, trying to always redo our resumes. How do, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to close by giving you four places to look. There are so many people who, so many advertisements that are just trying to say, look here, this is what will satisfy. And... The only way we can look away from those things is if we know where to look instead, where to look for Christ. So I'm going to give you four sort of practices of how to look for Christ and four places to look, look for him. So those are look inward, look outward, look backward, and look forward. So let's start with look inward. We see Paul doing all four of these in the book of Philippians, looking inward inward This isn't to say to look deep in your heart and there you'll find the answer. But rather, what Paul is doing, what we see in this passage, in the passage before, is that he says, do not be anxious about anything but in everything. Through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And essentially what he's doing is he's saying, be attentive to your anxieties. Look into what is happening internally within you and be attentive to that. And then bring that to God because that's often where he will meet you. You see, what happens is oftentimes our discontentment is really the surface thing. But what is underneath the discontentment is a deeper desire that we need Christ to meet. And oftentimes we don't even pay attention to what is underneath the surface. So what does that mean? Think about what is behind a Netflix binge. A Netflix binge isn't just that, like, I want to watch 10 episodes of Last Chance You in a row. I must do this, right? But often what's happening underneath it is there's a loneliness that sits underneath it. That you're saying, I want to have some connection with people, and I can't really do that in normal life, and I'm struggling to do that in normal life. So I'm going to have this voyeuristic relationship with this coach that yells at a bunch of college uh, students, And have some sort of relational connection of what's happening in the drama of the the movie. Or underneath it might be, I'm so frustrated by the messed up stuff that's happening in the world. I'm just going to watch a show to check out. But what sits underneath, the anxieties, the fears, the angers that sit underneath that discontentment. That is where Christ wants to meet you. So being honest about what's going on internally and prayerfully welcoming him in and asking him to reveal what's going on and to reveal himself to you in that. So look inward at what's happening inward and inviting Christ into those things. Look outward. So much of our discontentment comes from a lack of gratitude. If we were to just simply look around us in any given moment, we could see that we, have, we are receiving more grace than we could ever possibly hope for. I went on this little website recently, and it calculates how many breaths and how many heartbeats you've had in life. And when I did this, when I filled it out a couple days ago, hopefully I've had a few in between, um, I had 292 million breaths in life and 1.4 billion heartbeats. Every single one of those, every breath, every heartbeat is Pure grace from God. And if we were struck by his generosity towards us, that could subvert much of the discontentment that we feel. And then look backward and look forward. Look backward. We see Paul constantly looking backward to the cross. And in a world where there is so many circumstances that are brutal and horrible, sometimes gratitude isn't enough. Sometimes looking in at our emotions and bringing them to Christ isn't enough. And the overwhelming complexity of the brokenness of the world jars us. And in those moments we look to the cross. Because what's happening in the cross is that God is stepping into the evil circumstances of the world and is dealing with evil in the world on the cross. And... The God of the cross who puts himself in the worst of the circumstances as he suffers and bleeds is a trustworthy God as he steps into it with us. We can't make sense of it, but we can know that he is a trustworthy God because he stepped into it and he's doing something about it. So look backward and then look forward. We see in Philippians 3 that Paul has this forward vision to the kingdom of God when God will renew and restore all things. And we need to know that there's a day that's coming that the, the evil that happens behind the broken circumstances of the world will have to face its judge. And we need to know that there is a day that's coming when God will wipe away the tears from our eyes. And that the deep desires that we have, God is not telling us to be content eternally. But our desires for the right relationships, the perfect home uh, Pure enjoyment and satisfaction. That these are desires that one day it's coming where you will not have to be content. You will not have to struggle because Christ will renew and restore all things and make all things new. And that the call to contentment is a temporary call to contentment. In the fullness of his kingdom, we find fullness of satisfaction. And if we can, on a daily basis, look inward and deal with the emotions that we have and invite Christ into our deepest longings, if we can look around with over-the-top gratitude, if we can constantly be looking at the trustworthy God that put himself on the cross and look forward to the day that he will renew all things, we will over time learn, like Paul says here, he says that he's learned to be content in all things we will learn to see that Jesus is the satisfying feast who can bring us contentment in the midst of any circumstance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and how your goodness is is better than all that the $197 billion uh, have to offer. We thank you that you meet us in the midst of every broken and painful circumstance. We thank you for the reality that you uh, are even better in the midst of our best circumstances. And that we don't need to preserve everything that we have, but that uh, you are the one who preserves us. God, we're thankful um for the the breaths and the heartbeats that you've given us.